I can't imagine being sad about any aspect <laughs> of this press. <laughs> I'm really just delighted, delighted to have some good news for 2020 and um, excited about um, talking about the work and thrilled to, to go to Stockholm in 2021. Yeah, you just have to be patient for that. Actually, as things turned out, the pandemic lingered on and Andrea Gez wouldn't get to visit Stockholm until 2022. We hope you'll check out her appearance at the upcoming Nobel Week Dialogue on December the 9th on the theme of the future of life. But in the meantime, here's an encore presentation of our conversation with Andrea Gez from season two. At the center of galaxies, things become much more extreme in almost any way you can describe. You're listening to Nobel Prize Conversations. That was 2020 Physics Laureate Andrea Gess. It's like a crowded urban center. So it's like downtown in a city. So you have a lot of um, stars that are packed together. And things much, move much more quickly at the center um, than they do out in the suburbs. So same thing. You think of uh, urban centers as a fast-moving, fast-paced uh, place. Step by step, Andrea Gez kept finding better ways to measure the speedy suns at the hub of our Milky Way galaxy. With enough data, she could eventually see the unseeable, the supermassive black hole that ruled these stars. For this discovery, she received the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics, which she shared with Reinhard Genzel and Roger Penrose. Nobel Prize Conversations is produced with the support of our Nobel International Partners, 3M, ABB, Ericsson and Scania. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. And now back to Andrea Gez, who tells us what it's like to receive a Nobel Prize in 2020. Yes, it is different because of COVID nineteen. Of course, I've, I don't. I, I have never received it otherwise, so I don't really have a comparison point. But there's an interesting aspect of this, which is people are so happy to get good news. So I think there's been. Um, it's added an interesting element in terms of how delighted people are to receive and share in um, good news. And then the ease in which it's possible to talk to people all around the world to give interviews or to give talks and share share the work because everybody's new norm is to do it by the computer. That's a good point. It must have changed things a bit, actually. It's, it's made it more global, more easier to share. It seems that way. I mean, I've really, it's been interesting in terms of thinking about all the invitations that have come in and how to think about what to do and what not to do, but realizing the the huge range of people that can access you in this in this moment. Hmm. And another way it's strange this year is that, um, of course, you're, you, you can't come to Stockholm. How, how does that feel? Many people have asked how I feel, and I, I can't imagine being sad about any aspect <laughs> of this press. <laughs> I'm really just delighted, delighted to have some good news for 2020 and um, excited about um, 
talking about the work and thrilled to, to go to Stockholm in 2021. Yeah, you just have to be patient for that. But I think I mean, patience is definitely one of your virtues. 25 years looking at the centre of the galaxy. <laughs> it's true. I always tell my students, just pay attention to the science. Everything will work out in the end. <laughs> yeah, you're certainly a living example. Let, let's start there with that, with that patience. Lots of words could be used. Um, confidence, optimism, stubbornness about <laughs> this long, long search for evidence for the supermassive black hole. What gave you the confidence to keep going? Oh, actually, that's such an interesting question about how we thought about this work as we went along. We didn't set out to do a project that was 25 years long. In fact, we set out thinking that the project would be three years long, and we were only thinking of what has turned out to be the first phase, how to measure speeds or velocities. And even that, um, people were dubious about. So our first proposal was turned down. So at every stage, we've only thought about what's possible to do next. It's like the next step. And at each stage, I think we've been so delighted how well it's worked out that it leads you to the next step. So in a sense, it looks like a tremendous amount of patience. But it, in the process of doing it, we were only thinking about where you could go next. And then that led you to the next step. I don't know that anyone would have given us any telescope time had we told them that the whole thing would take us 25 years. So there's been a tremendous amount of progress along the way, which sort of um, fuels and um, motivates you to go on to the next step. Andrea Gez knew what kinds of measurements might prove her theory, but the problem was actually making those measurements. Problem number one? air. Even the thin air at the Keck Observatory, located on a remote Hawaiian volcano, created too much distortion to produce usable data. So how did Gez overcome this? She incorporated a new technique that measured the distortion and then cancelled it out. Brand new at the time, adaptive optics enabled her to make observations with exceptional clarity but this was just one of many challenges along the way. The fundamental concept, though, that you want to go out looking for evidence of something that can't be seen is a difficult one to get one's head around. <laughs> and to begin with, I think it's true to say that people didn't really think you'd be able to do what you set out to do, even looking at the trajectories of stars, the first part. Well, it required new technology. So the first challenge was that people had to believe that at that point in time, the technology would actually work. So the ability to correct for the blurring effects of the Earth's atmosphere. So our first challenge, in a sense, was just to convince people that we could take a picture, never mind a time series. So I guess it does sound difficult to find something that you can't see, and yet the laws of physics tell you that this object should have great influence on things around it. Um, so in fact, you expect to see a lot of motion um, if there are stars in the vicinity of this object. So in a sense, the challenge was really in being able to create the images and demonstrate that there were stars that were potentially very close to the black hole. And even seeing them close in two dimensions doesn't mean that they're close in three dimensions, because you're missing that third dimension when you just take an image. 
I think it would be nice to describe what is going on um, at the place you're looking at, which is what, 26,000 light years away. To tell us about the centre of the galaxy. So the centre of the galaxy is a really interesting place. At the centre of galaxies, things become much more extreme in almost any way you can describe. So the density of stars goes up as you go towards the centre of the galaxy. So it's a very crowded region. So in a sense, the analogy one can make, it's like a crowded urban centre. So it's like downtown in a city. So you have a lot of um, stars that are packed together and things much, move much more quickly at the center um, than they do out in the suburbs. So same thing, you think of uh, urban centers as a fast moving, fast paced uh, place. Um, and other processes or other characteristics um, are also prevalent there. So there are strong magnetic fields. Any characteristic almost that you can think about um, in the galaxy are going to be more extreme um, at the centre of the galaxy. So it's a very dynamic place. And when you talk about the centre, do we mean the the absolute geometrical centre of the galaxy? Is it possible to say what that is? Well, we believe this is the very uh, centre of the galaxy, but... Even such a question of where is the exact center is a very difficult thing to establish. So, in fact, we use these other measures first to think about where the center is, like where the density gets to be the highest. But in fact, where we pointed the telescope was at a, an unusual radio source whose name is Sagittarius A star. It's a lousy name. Um, <laughs> well, and it's Part of it's good. Sagittarius means that it's in the constellation of Sagittarius, which is the teapot, and the teapot pours into the center of the galaxy. So if you look up at the night sky, that helps you guide um, your eye to where the center of the galaxy is. But this uh, radio source emits unlike any stars or gas that we typically think about. So when it was discovered, people gave it the name Sagittarius A because it was the brightest, a very bright object, well, bright for the region, and asterisks, because nuclear physicists use that notation to note excited state. So in fact, what they were trying to um, imply is that it's not a star, it's an excited gas state, and yet we call it Sagittarius A star. So it's really Sagittarius A, not a star. <laughs> so we were really looking in the vicinity of this object, because it had been suggested that its unusual emission was associated with matter falling onto a black hole, but at a very, very, very low rate. So you have your supermassive black hole and these had been observed in galaxies. Well, something had been observed in galaxies elsewhere in the universe, which indicated that there might be supermassive black holes. And the thinking is that one of these is at the centre of every galaxy. Yeah, so the evolution of our thinking about supermassive black holes was actually quite different than how we came to think about um, their counterparts, their lower mass counterparts, the stellar mass black holes. So the stellar mass black holes were thought of from a theoretical perspective initially, and then found observationally later on. The supermassive black holes were initially thought of because of observations of a small set of galaxies known as active galactic nuclei. And 
these galaxies, um, I often like to call them the prima donnas of the galaxy world because they're kind of show-offs. They have um, these huge jets of emission coming out from their centers. And at their center, they have a, a mission that doesn't look like starlight, and it's very bright. So people hypothesize that this is from supermassive black holes. So a very large mass, millions to a billion times the mass of the sun that was driving this unusual phenomena. Um, And that led people to think, well, maybe all galaxies harbor supermassive black holes at their centers, but these are black holes that are quiet, or often I like to say they're um, black holes on a diet, simply because they're not accreting a lot of matter compared to the active galactic nuclei. And that is really what led us to think about looking for a supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy. Because if you're going to look for a typical, ordinary garden variety, absolutely nothing special about us, it's, it's, our, own, it's our own galaxy. And of course, it's the closest center of a galaxy that you'll ever have to study. What's it doing there? What's it doing at the center of the galaxy? Is it a necessary part of the fact that the galaxy exists? That's such an interesting question. And in fact, the way we think about the relationship between supermassive black holes and their host galaxies have evolved tremendously over the last 25 years. So when we first started to report our um, results, in some sense, you know, the, the first phase, the thinking was very different. It was which came first? Did the black hole come first or did the galaxy come first? This is very much like the chicken or the egg problem, which came first. And we had theories to explain both ideas. You could um, generate one before the other by different methods or ideas. But what's what has um, emerged since that time is that if you look at the candidate supermassive black holes in other galaxies, the mass of these galaxies corresponds very well to the mass of the uh, of the black hole. In other words, the central component. So in overall, it appears that the supermassive black holes are always roughly 0.1% of the mass of the central part of the galaxy. And this is a really interesting correlation because it's really hard to imagine a scenario in which something so small influences something so large. And so that leads us to the conclusion that whatever formed one had to form the other synergistically, that they had to form as um, together in a symbiotic relationship, and that there's some feedback that helps these two things maintain their um, relationship as both of them grow over time. So we've discovered that it's not the right question, (laughs) which came first, that they actually came um, together, which means that supermassive black holes are an important element in terms of understanding the formation and evolution of galaxies. And so the reason you were able to detect it was down to the motion of the stars that are surrounding it. And in particular, there's this one star, uh, I think you've described as your favourite star in the universe. Yes, my favorite star in the universe, indeed, is SO2. We've discovered thousands of stars at the center of the galaxy, so you have to figure out how to give them names. So S actually stands for Sagittarius A stars, and the first number tells you how close in rings the star is from the black hole. So zero means it's in the closest, it's in the central region. And then we just number them in the order of discovery. 
Actually, we numbered them in order of um, proximity to where we thought the black hole was at the time of discovery. So that tells you that actually at the time we discovered the stars, there was a closer one, SO1. And we didn't know, in a sense, which one would win the race in terms of being the most interesting star. But it turns out that SO2, at the time of discovery, was at its furthest approach from the black hole. So very quickly, because what we've discovered is that it's on an orbit that has a very short orbital period. In other words, it takes 16 years to go all the way around. So while we might think 16 years to go all the way around, that seems like an awfully long time. Like If you put it in context with other things in our galaxy, it takes our sun 200 million years to go around the center of the galaxy. So there's absolutely no hope of measuring the full orbit. And it's only because there's a very massive object that um, the orbital timescales can get down to a human or a career (laughs) (laughs) or an experiment's worth of time. So SO2 going around every 16 years made it the most powerful um, star. In fact, I should say, actually, it's not just that it's a short orbital period, but that we can get both images of this object and spectra. And spectra are super important because the images provide us with the motion in the plane of the sky, so the two dimensions, mm-hmm. and we're missing how it moves along our line of sight. And this other technique of spectroscopy allows us to measure the star's motion along this line of sight. So this is the star with the shortest orbital period that's bright enough for us to get both images and spectra of the star. You've painted a lovely picture of being able to see yes, the 16-year orbit in, in three dimensions. Yes, you must feel a great connection with SO2. And rather sorry for SO1, rather missed out on the fame. <laughs> well, poor SO1. It's, it's actually important uh, in the sense that it helps us, but it becomes an assistant. It's a sous chef rather than a chef. <laughs> <laughs> and it's having something that goes around in 16 years is sort of interesting in terms of your relationship, actually, because I can think of, as the star goes around, I can think of um, the key things that were happening to me um, as a human being, you know, when I got hired, when I got tenure, when I had kids. <laughs> you know, it's slow enough that you can really think about what's uh, what's happening as the star is going through its its journey. And because it's elliptical, not a circle, um, the way it moves actually changes uh, quite a bit. So when the star is at closest approach, it goes much faster than when it's at furthest approach. So things are very active. And in fact, that's an important point because you're much closer to the black, well, by definition, you're much closer to the black hole at closest approach. But that means also that you're deeper in um, the gravitational potential well, or rather you're you're seeing more of the effects of, of stronger gravity. Um, so you can actually test how Einstein predicts that space and time should mix as you get closer and closer to a strongly gravitating source. Mm-hmm. I might be taking the connection between you and SO2 too far, but have you noticed any correlation between the activity of your own life and the, the speed with which the orbit is occurring? How connected well, certainly, are you? Um, <laughs> Because that's such an interesting point um, where the physics, um, new physics is revealed, the energy that we, we put into this experiment goes way, way up. So I would say the uh, the activity of the group, the excitement of the group, and maybe the stress <laughs> goes way up at closest approach. <laughs> but there's actually a second test that becomes much more detectable Well, it's detectable as you measure the difference between what happens at closest approach to furthest approach. 
this goes around every 16 years. So that's a eight year um, period. So it's a, it's a slower process, but we are sort of heading into the next phase um, where we're starting to see this next signal emerge. And I have to say, that's also the really exciting and nice thing about almost about this is that you go from one thing where you see it clearly and you have enough time to think about it, digest it, develop the code, write the papers, and then you go into the next, the next phase. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's it's exciting. It's, it mm. never ceases to amaze me how uh, how much information this star has to offer. You've painted a beautiful picture again of this time of of, of how there's sort of dynamic changes in in what's happening in your observation. So when one talks about a twenty five year sort of <laughs> um, search, it sounds it, that sounds a bit even, but it's obviously not even at all. There are lots of highs and lows and all sorts of excitements along the way. Yes, this SO2 definitely defines the pace <laughs> <laughs> of the work of understanding what's at the center of the galaxy from a gravitational physics point of view. But the other thing that's been so lovely about this project is that as technology has evolved. And there's been a a rapid development in the ways in which we can see the center of the galaxy with this work, our ability to get sharp images from these large ground-based telescopes. Um, It's unveiled things that we didn't expect near the black hole. So in a sense, we've had the opportunity to look at lots of different kinds of astrophysics that we didn't expect to to be engaged with. So it was the gravitational physics that sort of drove and defined the the measurements, but many new branches have emerged, which in a sense also have been a wonderful um, thing to investigate as SO2 is in its quieter phase, or not quieter, but, you know, where you just have to be patient. (laughs) (laughs) Andre Gez is the fourth woman to receive the Nobel Prize in Physics. She joins the ranks of remarkable scientists like Donna Strickland, Maria Guppert-Meyer and Marie Curie. For the young Gez, books about Curie and other leading women were a source of fascination. Today, she clearly understands the value of her visibility and how it sends a signal to the next generation. You, as a successful female scientist, are a role model in well, many ways, at least two ways, um, are that you're a female physicist and a female Nobel laureate in physics, of which there are very few, of course. And you're also a scientist. And at this particular time, scientists in general are kind of needed, I would say. I mean, um, we're, all, we're all very well aware of the spread of misinformation and the dif- difficulties in evidence-based decision-making. Um, how do you view your role as a role model? I think this is, um, well, I take this very seriously, actually. I think that with a prize like this, there's great opportunity, but there's also great responsibility that comes with it because you have enough, um, the responsibility to share your science and the importance of, of science. At this moment in particular, encouraging the next generation to think critically and to talk about how, how one goes through that critical thinking process 
These days in particular, the importance of discussion, the importance of disagreement, that that's in fact how you get to a deeper understanding is actually when you don't agree with somebody else. So rather than shying away from difficult um, conversations where, where you have different perspectives, you can actually lean into that disagreement and, and, and learn something. Um, so I think it's an important, um, time to talk about um, the scientific process. It is that process of um, critical thinking and critiquing of each other's uh, work. I mean, that's how science works, is we poke. (laughs) Um, So in a sense, I feel very strongly about talking about this process to the next generation. And then, of course, in terms of the gender um, role model, I've always felt very strongly about this, um, having been educated at institutions that don't have a lot of women or didn't have a lot of women. When I was a student, I really came to realize how important visible role models are in the sense that they can show you the path, that that path is possible. So in fact, I've always enjoyed and tried to teach at the introductory undergraduate level, because I think that standing up in front of a class um, and showing your enthusiasm and your presence um, is actually some some of the uh, most straightforward ways you can influence the next generation. So in that same way, I think this receiving the Nobel Prize gives me the opportunity to talk about and highlight the work. And that's interesting and important, not only because I think the work is interesting, but because I think it's so important that um, the next generation understands that there's a path forward for the young women as well as the young men. Mm. When do you think it might become unremarkable that a female receives the Physics Nobel Prize? Is it? Is oh that- well, I think we're we're seeing tremendous progress. If you think about um, even hiring a female physicist in faculty, so I think I was the fourth female faculty hire at UCLA. <laughs> so evidently, number four is my is my number. <laughs> But there are many more uh, faculty already, and we can see the impact. I mean, it's a, in some sense, it's a trickle-down um, effect that the more faculty you have, the more students that come along at each level down, so the graduate students and then the undergraduates. So it, you, we already are seeing, seeing the change. It's slow but steady. The older I get, the more opportunities I have to understand the complexity of this dynamic. So it is certainly true that um, if you want to see more women considered, one of the best way to do that is to ask other women for their recommendation, simply because we tend to be very aware of our own communities. I mean, it's a bias that's very hard to overcome. So in a sense that if we only ask the guys who they think about, you're more likely to to get a bunch of guys recommended. So to be conscious of our our underlying and very natural, um, I mean, it's how we survive, biases. So the more um, we understand that if we want a diverse um, population of faculty, when we think about faculty hiring, that we have to ask a diverse set of people for recommendations. I mean, the more that we're conscious of what it takes to understand who's good and out there, what the, how to tap into those networks, the better off we'll be. So I guess that's that's been my, my approach to trying to increase, at least at that level, faculty diversity. Understand that you have to ask a diverse group. Understand that if you want diverse 
points of view, you need diverse committees. And, um, and it will, it will come naturally. I mean, I, for, for instance, because I care a lot about this issue, I tend to pay attention to um, the young women coming up. So I have, I have an implicit bias. So if you ask me who's good, I'll think of, I mean, I'll be more aware of the really talented uh, women. It's not that I don't pay attention to what's happening with the younger men, but um, I'm, I'm just attuned to the young women. Um, it, it's, it's a, I think it's a natural uh, bias. But it, it is interesting. You just see it all the time. We are all constrained by our own worldview. And it, you ha- to step outside it is, is, is not easy, I don't think. Yes, social change is hard. And I'm excited, in a sense, I'm excited to be, it amazes me to be still part of that, in a sense, the frontier of that change. So to be both as a scientist, part of the uh, frontier of our changing knowledge, but it's almost like it's a different frontier. It's a frontier of our changing understanding of who can be a scientist. But, you know, the Nobel Prize is amazing in the sense that um, you know, the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in physics was Marie Curie. I mean, she was just a phenomenal um, scientist, and to have her recognized so early on, I think, was is is uh, is remarkable. And for me, she was an important um, role model. When my, when I was young, my dad used to buy me um, books of uh, of of leading women and um, Marie Curie's uh, biographies were some of the the ones that I found most fascinating. So I really appreciate um, how much strong role models can make a difference. As a young girl, did you know that you wanted to be a scientist? <laughs> uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> so no, um, I mean I was four when the moon landings ha- first happened, and they clearly were a pivotal moment for me and many many other people. Uh, do you remember? Do you so, remember them? vividly. I, um, and you know, the family lore is that I said I wanted to be the first woman on the moon. So that (laughs) I think that probably tells you more about my family than anything else. (laughs) Um, but it got me thinking about the universe. So my parents brought me a telescope, a little telescope. And, um, certainly it's what led to, um, me pondering, I mean, what got me so interested was these 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 conceptual problems of what do you mean the edge of the universe the boundaries the boundary problems basically the beginning of time the end of time the edge of the universe these things that you know you can't talk about the way you know one thinks as a kid about based on your own experience just leads you immediately to these contradictions and i do remember this is what kept me up at night it, it really bothered me so there was something about it that um really engaged me. Although at the same time, I wanted to drop out of school and be a, uh, a dancer. So and this is when I was very, very young. So, um, but it became very clear that I really enjoyed math. So math and logic puzzles and puzzles in general. So I clearly, I had an aptitude for that kind of analytic um, thinking. So by the time I was in high school, it was very clear that math and science, I didn't understand 
within that, except for the fact that the the things that really engaged me were um, the universe questions. But I think it, I think it's interesting that you um, you didn't accept necessarily statements like the edge of the universe. I mean, yes, people question it, but to really worry about it shows a um, shows a questioning nature. Um, uh, and, and a desire to really know, because it's so easy when you're receiving science at school just to learn the fact and not and accept it and not ask about it. And maybe that's the problem with science teaching, that it, it sort of turns into facts rather than questions. Well, it's interesting that you point that out, because I went to a school that was all about asking questions and not teaching facts. So it was a very progressive, it was the University of Chicago's lab school. So it was developed by John Dewey, who was an educator who really believed in um, teaching people to learn rather than teaching people the facts. So I am certainly a product of an educational model that is all about teaching people to think. So in fact, it was just last night I, I gave a, um, a talk to uh the lab school at UCLA, his graduate student came out to UCLA and started the UCLA lab school. So I wanted my kids to go to this school, this elementary school, because I really believe um, so strongly in the importance of teaching people to think. The facts, you know, the facts will change. But if you, if you, if you teach people to question, uh, which is ultimately what we need to do as basic scientists, and actually as people, we need to question um, the world in which we live. <laughs> it's coming back to this question of, you know, critical thinking um, that's mm. so critical at this moment. Yeah, I was fortunate. So I was fortunate to be tr- to be educated um, in this manner. But it obviously worked for you. <laughs> I suppose the insecurities in most people that uh, that things like maths scare people a bit. So to enjoy maths and to enjoy using it is a place that most people don't quite get to because they're just, they can relate it to a time at school when they kind of failed to measure up quite as much as they should have, which is a terrible thing that school does to people. For me, I think math is my language. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, It's a language of logic of what, you know, if A, then B. Um, and for me, it's interesting because for me, the things that scared me um, or put me off um, were actually writing and speaking. Um, so the fact that I enjoy speaking um, to public audiences today is my surprise. Um, <laughs> that, in fact, um, those were the things that terrified me more than, um, far more than math. <laughs> when did you suddenly discover that you were no longer worried by that? Oh, gosh, that's actually a funny story. <laughs> Well, funny to me. It's ironic. <laughs> it's a reminder that we should always explore the things that we were a little afraid of. So when I applied to graduate school, I actually applied. Um, I wanted to go someplace that wouldn't force me to do be a teaching uh, assistant uh, because I was so concerned about public speaking. I just I I was ho- just horrified. <laughs> Uh, by it. So I was one of those people who, you know, if you asked me my name, I would, you know, I'd get very nervous in a circle. So I went to Caltech where I had a research assistantship. I had to give my first research talk, I launched series, and I shook from my head to my toe. And my advisor said, you need to teach. (laughs) Um, So I think this, I mean, this 
remembering back on these moments, actually, I, I, I kind of can't believe how this actually unfolded um, because I thought, okay, I have to teach, but I don't want to do it. But then I thought, okay, I'm going to teach the introductory level because there's so few women at Caltech. <laughs> they, <laughs> this is the class I really want to teach. And at Caltech, professors are the ones who get to do those um, discussion uh, sections. So I actually had to argue with the department um, uh, person who was in charge of this that they should let me um, uh, do this. So I've gone, for, I've, I took somehow something that I was just terrified to do. And I made it about something I really wanted to do, which, because um, I was already interested and, and aware, quite aware, having been uh, an undergrad at MIT and then a grad student at Caltech about the dearth of women. Um, so I ended up teaching doing a teaching assistantship at the introductory level. And you just can't get nervous that often. So I just had to get over it. So it was a an interesting year of learning that, you know, if you can find the reason you want to do it, you can over, you can surmount your, your fear of doing it. So I think I learned um, to translate nervousness into excitement because um, what I wanted to share with the students is, you know, th- this isn't that hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I, I suppose, yes, in the sort of uh, teaching tradition of Caltech and that sort of Feynman tradition played exactly to your strengths. It's asking questions, it's, it's probing, it's doing what you believe in. And so why be nervous about being yourself, if you see what I mean? I don't know. It took, but it took some time. So I'm really grateful for that experience because it really showed me that it was something that in, in spite of my early fears that I had the capacity to do. Um, and so I really like to encourage my students and my kids, you know, figure out what you enjoy doing, but always keep trying new things because you, you don't know um, without trying what you'll ultimately enjoy. So sometimes when you ask, uh, especially a recent laureate, the question, so what's next? They, um, they just look at you with horror and say, Is that, was that not enough for you? <laughs> but, um, but in your case, I think what's next is probably quite relevant. Um, what's going on right now? Oh, gosh, there's so much um, that we're in the midst of doing. I mean, the center of the galaxy is such a rich and exciting uh, place. And this is, an, uh, this is a project that just gets more and more interesting with time. So you're really benefited from um, continuing further on. So um, we're in the middle of um, these next tests of how gravity works uh, near a supermassive black hole. And then pursuing so many of these questions that have emerged from the center of the galaxy in terms of what we expect to see in the vicinity. One of my favorite ones is trying to understand these objects that um, appear to be um, t- what we call tidally disruptive. In, in, in other words, the, the outer layers are being uh, stripped off as they make their closest approach um, to the black hole. 
And I think it might be revealing processes that uh, might give us new insight into what's being seen with the gravitational wave detectors. So in other words, there's a mystery that's being unveiled with our new window into the universe that may help us understand another mystery that's um, being struggled with, with another, a different window into the universe. So it's again, it's like these these pieces of the puzzle um, that we're putting together. And then moving forward, we're working on um, advancing the technologies that we're using at the Keck telescope to get even clearer pictures. And then ultimately, I'm part of the 30-meter telescope, which is the next generation of telescopes. So I, um, you know, I'm thrilled about this prize, but I'm also just so excited about um, the future of this work. Yeah, it sounds like uh, I can't see with all that to do, you're going to have time to be a role model at the same time, or rather an active role model out there talking to people. But um, I guess you'll fit it all in somehow. Well, actually, the thing I like to say is, you know, figure out what you want to do, figure out, you know, the new things, but also figure out how to let, um, figure out how to help others enjoy and discover what they like to do. So I like to think of it actually in thirds. And in, um, I think so much of what our responsibility as scientists is, is to go out and talk about our research, that public engagement in science. And I think that, um, in my case, can have the dual purpose of um, public engagement and the encouragement of the next generation of young women. You've just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Filt Hinterland for Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Sally Henriksen. And I'm Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. This episode is from season two of the show. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.